This third season of Tuvo's Vivencia in Conversation With is supported by not one, but two platforms that maximize the power of the world wide web and serve dancers and choreographers from all over the world. This season is brought to you by Choreography Online, the online platform designed for choreographers to build an international name and generate income at the same time. The first time I was introduced to the idea, I thought, oh, this is genius. Choreographers have to upload one video of the entire piece and one video of themselves or their assistant explaining the choreography, counts, intentions, etc. And that's it, very simple. Anywhere in the world, your choreography can be purchased, learned and performed for however long you would like to license it. Step up your choreography career with Choreography Online. Visit choreography.online. Very simple. On a recent trip to LA, I connected with Gracie and Laura. I know Gracie from way back, but when I got to know what they are up to, I became a true fan and I knew that what they were doing to spread the knowledge about floor work technique is very special. Ground Grooves TV is a virtual studio to expand your floor work practice from anywhere. Explore an ever-expanding library of floor work classes for all levels. Fitness classes to build strength, stamina, and flexibility. Foundation videos to deepen your understanding of mechanics and details, and concept videos to expand your artistry. Start your seven-day free trial by visiting groundgrooves.tv and receive your personalized training program. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the next episode of Towards Vivencia in Conversation With. Today we have Hayley J.S. Matthew. Uh, she's a contemporary dancer, Rolfer, and she is the initiator and caretaker of the Sanctuary of the Fault Line. has a very, very uh, suggestive name that we will get into that. I loved uh, reading more about it. Uh, but her background is uh, firstly in acrobatics, and then she studied fine arts at London Guildhall with a first degree in material culture, architecture, and curatorship at Leeds University. Something that I'm very, very interested that we probably uh, talk about later is she always danced but steered away from conservatoires. Probably that's something that we have in common. I also started the conservatoire, but I never finished. <laughs> uh, in 2006, she went to Ghana to dance with the dance company called Noyam. And back into the UK, she learned the craft of choreography and improvisation at the side of the dancer and legend Adam Benjamin. Uh, also, she's been curating dances and collaborating uh, with different um, other projects, everything that you can find in her in the website name and some ensemble. We will put all those notes in the in the podcast uh, credits. Her hot topics are intimacy, freedom, grace, the power of vulnerability and authenticity, fugitivity, a word that I loved, woman, the unleashing of creative life force, dancer's health and potential, and what she believes is yet to be fulfilled and tap and realize potential of dance performance its potency and power for the human family. That's something that we will talk definitely. Thank you very much for being with us, Hayley, and Happy New Year. Oh, Happy New Year to you too. Thanks for having me. 
One of the reasons why we have Haley with us today and we are recording this almost as a matter of urgency is she's having an event called the Dance of Being, a retreat, a wild conference and a lab happening in person but also online uh, between the 20th of January and the 22nd of January. So today we're going to be unpicking this Dance of Being and everything that is behind it. So just to start on very, very quickly, um, this is a series of labs that started in 2021. And in the website, we can read that is uh, you're going to be leading, you are going to be dealing with themes such as dancing as a foundation of living and a way to fall through to other worlds, something very suggesti uh, suggestive as well. Calling on the embodiment intelligence of dancing as a way to meet troubled times or support participants into less egocentric ways of being. So can you start telling us more about the ethos of the, this dance of being? What do you understand by embodied intelligence? The why behind this event? Something that we talked before the recording, the potential of dance as a foundational, as a foundational um, skill, a foundational aspect of human living. Can you tell us a tiny bit more about all that? Yeah, I'm going to try. Um, so, um, so the lab comes out of, a, of, of the Sanctuary on the Fault Line movement, um, which is a radical feminist movement that, that is uh, intending to liberate dance and dancers um, from systemic troubles um, in order to meet the greater potential of dance or the great potential of dance within them and then and therefore for society as well um so it's a project that's been uh burning with me for like yeah since 2020 um and part of the project has been to create these labs and uh, now this is the third one um i think it'll be the final one but let's see <laughs> um because it's kind of been taking a bit of a series but they're also certainly kind of standalone and I guess what I'm, uh, what I'm trying to do, I'm not spoon feeding this like, you know, how do we become uh, less egocentric as a dancer or as a human or, or any of the themes are not like spoon fed, but it's kind of a, my hope is that it's three days of experience that will unpack these truths for us. Um, the first lab was called Dancing a Path Through the Crisis. And the beginning felt very much about, and that was only for female dancers. And it felt very much about re-establishing a sense of worth, like within, like deep within them, of 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 their practice at a time when, you know, dance had been kind of there was very it wasn't always explicit, but certainly there was a very implicit stripping of worth for the dance sector. I think in the pandemic, um, the second lab was called Rage is the Same Reaction, um, and I guess it was really like beginning to pull us through. Um, this other aspect of Sanctuary on the Fault Line work, which is emotions are the currency of the untamed world. You know, if we're thinking about becoming fugitive and becoming the powerful dancers that we can be and giving that power to society, like we have to untame our emotions um, and uh, use them, allow them to run through our bodies and our systems and our psychological system, um, you know, to the tips of our fingers and beyond so that they can move us. Um, and that particularly was about letting rage through um not in a way to hurt ourselves or anyone but um that it was that we're so often told like not especially as women not to be angry <laughs> you know it's one of the talks at that lab was very much about um 
was by a really beautiful um, uh, feminist academic and um, she was really unpicking that uh, anger is very often at what she called a, a male tool. Um, like it's not necessarily usually a feminine tool um, or like kind of good, she called it, like a good. It's not something that's valued in the, in the fem feminine system. Um, and so what I was trying to do was like uh, turn this around to be like this is a, this is a, a rage is a gift you know it's the thing that means that a parent can lift a car because a child's trapped under it when they would never usually be able to lift that car and it can lift many many curtain you know steel steel curtains and iron grids um, and that's often its job and that we have to break three of those things in ego work and as dancers and as humans um, in order to unleash our potential right. Um, uh, and so we have to accept that rage is the same reaction um, before we do that uh, in order to, to use its power. Um, and one of the notions, the foundational notions of Sanctuary on the Fault Line is that um, it's our job as dancers to feel everything, you know, feel the currents of the world. And, and that's a huge job. And we need space and value to do that. Um, and then we have to we have to feel all those emotional currents, you know, of the many crises of any particular event um, and let that run through us into into gesture, into choreography. And because that means that people can come to our dances um, and they can move through emotional territory that is impossible to move through alone. So um, because I think a lot of emotional territory is explicitly impossible to move through alone. And, you know, many of us deal with it in one to one therapy these days. But I think dance, one of the things about it being foundational is it does that for us. You know, there's a reason that um, for centuries in a dance performance, the soloist gets to a point where it's almost breaking her, the grief or the rage or the joy. And that is the moment that the chorus arrive um, in a dance performance and, and the soloist and the chorus and the whole audience move through an emotional territory that just would have been impossible to move through on their own and so this is what I was kind of inviting that we can't have a block on on rage um if we're gonna accept that reality and that role as as dancers which for me is really one of our roles we have to feel of those things channel all those things and then help others move through these really difficult territories um which is a big job right <laughs> it's quite a big job um, and then this year the dance of being um I guess having moved through those kind of more critical crisis and blocking moments it's more an invitation into um could we invite a sense of being rather than doing in our dancing and also in our human bodies you know in our human lives um how could we do that and so there's a a really beautiful team of, i'm not doing it alone luckily <laughs> and there's a really beautiful team of um of us who are going to invite um invite us at john sturk who's an osteopath and yoga teacher going to invite us into a very 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 quiet practice that really takes us through the layers of our consciousness. Um, I'm going to invite us into what I'm calling strangeness, length and lightness, um, which is to uh, investigate through more rolfing techniques, like how we can invest, how we can find our, our very, very unique ways of being in gravity in our posture and in our like gestural lives and use them choreographically. Um, and then also how we can come into a sense of lightness and length in a way that's not about stretching, but about, uh, accessing what we call involving the tonic system um, and therefore um, having a kind of presence from there which is very different to the kind of to what we call the phasic system which is the more sympathetic nervous system presence um, so my interest is like could we have this more more tonic 
more buoyant, more graceful sense of being that doesn't rely on us being in action all the time, even if we are moving, you know. Um, and then we'll also have some Isadora Duncan technique, which I think is very beautiful for learning to do that and spiralling in strength around it. Um, and then we'll also have Beoku Malafi coming with us to talk about possession. And I think because once we get out the way with this ego work, um, we can be possessed by other things and dance them for people, you know, um, and of course that's another job. Um, I hope that builds some kind of, <laughs> some kind of picture. <laughs> it does, it does beautifully. Um, I would like to, to ask you to go a bit deeper because I can see that you have uh, a huge background or a huge amount of uh, knowledge in terms and clarity in articulating key concepts like the um, uh, egocentric uh, aspects of dancing, the foundational um, aspect of, of dancing and why that's important or, or how that can be used as a tool to digest emotions. Or uh, I love the, the image of the, the soloist when each of us are going through that rite of passage alone always, but there is a moment that we need to be re-supported by the community, reinsert in that community, and that that's really important, how we go through those processes alone, and there is a moment that the process cannot continue unless you are in company. So this podcast is normally listened by dancers and dance artists and performing artists, so we are not going to try to preach to the converted already because we all already know we have even more than knowing we have experience and by experience we know how important is that self-practice but many of us struggle how to convey those messages when we need to ask for support when we need to to preach to the, the non-converted and, and, and telling them come come to my place to see what you need to experience because once you've experienced you are converted so because you have this fantastic, poetic, beautiful, articulated, intelligent way of explaining. Could you offer some tools for our listeners when they are, we, because we all agree with what you're saying, but how do you convey those messages for people who are not that familiar with that? We know that uh, this is helpful for self-development, but how that self-development can impact to a wider world. So therefore, in a nutshell, what the hell is the future of dance in a society that it's more and more disembodied? For me, um, and I've got a longer talk on this, so listeners could go and listen to um, the... Oh, I'm going to remember what it's called, and then you can ask me later. <laughs> um, we can put the link in the program notes. Because for me, there's, there's a real hook, because it's more difficult to talk about, um, you know, the more esoteric kind of concepts of... Or even concepts, right, of... Um, of ego or of presence or of consciousness but emotion is pretty understood um by by the public you know everyone knows that they feel anger and grief and joy it's very strong in all of us you know consciousness and layers of consciousness and layers of presence more difficult and maybe it's the more meditators among us or um you know it, the non-dancing public and stuff that um uh that would connect to those kind of things. But I think emotion is something, and this, 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 this thing that we just began to talk about, about um, that being one of the explicit roles of, of dance. This is, for me, one of the, the key points that needs to be back in the world, the forgotten role of dance, which is to help us move through emotion. You know, bakers bake bread, um, lawyers help us with paper, paperwork we need, you know, and we still need that in our lives. But 
Um, and of course, we can all go to, people can go to therapy and work through emotional territory. But there's something very true about what you just said about there's a point, And it's such an emotional, deeply relieving kind of moment. Um, it's such relief when we get it because we don't often get it. When, it, when, when what you said just becomes so essential, so the ground needs to come up under us, right? And the ground is also community, not just the physical ground. You know, community is the psychological ground. Um, it needs to come up under us and accept us and hold us and be with us and not just listen to us necessarily, um, because there are things that which we deeply know as dancers that cannot be said um and so therefore like a, a talking therapy wouldn't be able to kind of crack that but there's something about um being with emotion that dance can offer so beautifully and and it means that people don't have to do that for themselves in their lives they can come to you know if it's our job and we need to be very well resourced if it is our job because it's hard like i was saying it's a it's a huge responsibility to take on and I think that's why this is a kind of double-edged sword around how we can advocate for dance because um, we can say, look, this is, this is what dancers have to do <laughs> and therefore this is why it should be valued and they need more resources financially than perhaps they have right now um, or more ease in, in the systemic ways of accessing that um, than they do right now and maybe different contracts when they do have contracts. Um, um, and then this is all because this is what it does for public if a dancer has the time because I mean particularly when I particularly being a, um, a role for as I am you know and seeing um, many clients in pain and um, also dancers in injuries um, and also dealing with the with their lives as dancers like what's just become so clear to me is that um, dance is not communicating what it could communicate and there is no explaining, there is no amount of explaining its value that we can do that will fill that hole. Because the deepest prop, one of the most, not it's not the deepest problem, but one of the the hardest, you know, like concrete problems is that um, in systemic realities in which we dwell, dancers are exhausted. And they can't, um, and what I think we need to, because first we need to give, perhaps we need to, you know, perhaps it's a double-edged sword and we can do the value of dance and the, and the value of it for public, the necessity to resource it and the value of it for public together. But unless a dancer is not exhausted all the time, you know, in a reality where, she, where he or she is um, always in a deficit, because maybe as a self-producing artist, she's, um, she's doing a lot of free labour to begin with. I mean we don't want to get people's backs up but that is a colonial reality that is a like uh, an in kind of enslaved reality um where there's a lot of free labor in the creation process um and um i'm dancing around a lot of different avenues here but i'm hope i hope i'm being useful in saying that um unless we attend to that first um, because what I see and I feel in my nervous system when I watch a lot of dance is, of course, many things, but often exhaustion and stress. Um, and we know as dancers that we communicate implicitly. And um, uh, so even if we're trying to communicate something else, if we've already written a, um, you know, spent days and days writing an application and then waited for it to come and not got it and then done five auditions in that time and probably done another 
you know, 10 other applications for other things. Um, when we get to do that performance, we, we have no ground. Like there is no psychological, that we might have a stage under our feet or whatever we're dancing, but there is no psychological ground from which to come because we've just grown ourselves to that point. And so there is never that moment like that you were saying of like, like you, you watch Fred Astaire, right? And you know, the world receives him. And there would be no way that he could do, because he was completely resourced, he was acknowledged, realised and resourced in, in, in the moment. And there weren't as many dancers as, as there are now. And so maybe it was easier, but you know the world is receiving him and valuing him. That's not the reality when you, when you see, you know, usually unnamed dancers who have done a gazillion million different things before they've got to that point and then are dancing. They, they have nothing to give but exhaustion. So until we attend to that... Um, and there are many, many things that need to be attended to after that. I think that there, there's, um, it's hard to feel hope um, and possibility before attending to that. And the only way I could attend to that for myself and begin to offer attendance to that for, for others is, is through the Sanctuary on the Fault Line movement, which is a lot of what drove it into being. Um, um, and for me, that's a kind of acknowledgement of a more feminist um, reality that is that, um, you know, there are the doings of dance, like the writing an application, um, the going to an audition, the getting into the studio, uh, the collaborating. But before that, where does the dance come from? You know, it doesn't come from nowhere, but it does often come slash always come from, from an unmonetized space of this emotional place, this like, I'm listening deeply to the currents of the world and I'm letting that spontaneously come through me. And if that's just beginning to spark, and we'll all know this moment as dancers and and, um, and as people interested in dance, um, if that's just beginning to spark, like you can feel like you can just begin to taste something like the new work that's just brewing. And if at that point you have to say what it is, or in a, in a, in a 150 word box and then many more boxes, and then maybe get that and then maybe don't get that and then maybe many more boxes after that, it's dead. Like the, uh, the dance is dead and also we're exhausted. And so there needs to be a reality where we can let that tiny little spark. And it's what Clarissa Pinkola Estes, um, the, the beautiful feminist uh, writer who wrote The Women Who Run With The Wolves, um, articulates around that is, the, that is the feminine in all of us, not just women, but men as well. That like the spark sparks and it needs the mystery and the darkness and the running and the panting and the like absolute mess before it's anything. And if you don't let it be in all those things, um, and if there's not space in the world for it to be in all of that, you don't get dance that is full of its own potential. Um, and you don't get dancers who are not exhausted. So we need a space to kind of drip feed that, those sparks that are beginning to come and that we can begin to taste. And then we also need to be seen, I think, unveiling those things. And so, as I said, the only way I could think of it was to run to, was to become fugitive from the system to run to the wild, which could be a rooftop or a forest or a car park, somewhere that is not red taped or permissioned. Um, and you, and you, begin, you just call out as you go to whoever it might be, like your friends, your neighbors, people that are probably close by to that place, people that maybe inhabit it anyway. And you just begin to tell them that you're going and then you open a gift economy and so they, they give you a little bit when you go. And that is the notion of Sanctuary on the Fault Line. That is the only way for me at the moment that I can see that 
that takes dance out of its exhausted reality and therefore begins to plant it in its great potential. That's brilliant. And actually it connects massively with uh, many of the previous episodes with different people. We talk about the scarcity blueprint of the dance artist. It's something that we've been growing and something that I made uh, a pledge to try to destroy that scarcity blueprint somehow. So I would like to there is a, there's, there's a scarcity blueprint in the dance world that we always um, go for no money or very little money, that we survive rather than we thrive. There is kind of like, um, there is a financial scarcity that comes from many years of not knowing that we are enough, seeing that we are not needed, uh, having to face uh, lots of uh, auditions, uh, different processes. Therefore, as dance artists, we are always barely surviving financially. And financially means that we have to run many different jobs. So there is that exhaustion that you're talking about. And in different episodes, we've been talking we have to, we have to. And in these different uh, podcasts with different artists, we've been exploring how they do it. And I'm wondering now, listening to you, if, um, and this is a genuine question, by being a dance fugitive from these uh, systems, which I, I love the, the term, is that working for you to get out of that scarcity? Meaning, is there a public that uh, gifted you enough for you not to survive, but to thrive, for you to be able to pay rent, for you to be able to go to a um, supermarket and, and not to have to look at every single label just to see if you can get by that week. Is that a model that is getting you out of that scarcity blueprint, that survival mode, that exhaustion, and therefore you don't have to do jobs that you don't want to? I don't do jobs that I don't want to anymore. Um, I mean, partly that's because I'm also a rolfer, um, and so I have another skill set and another income. But I mean, for that, um, you know, nine, ten years ago, I sold a house that I, um, I, I saved up all my student loan and my work during my student years, and I bought a house with that student loan, and then I sold that house and I became a rolfer. <laughs> so that's my other foundation. So I don't want to, like, uh, I don't want to discredit myself or 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 the, or the listeners by not saying that part you know that was important but um because so I think this is something we have to take care of even before we become fugitive for me and it's very practical and it could be a little bit boring but um for me before we become become fugitive because we could already we could already get exhausted again if we do just become fugitive from nowhere which is a beautiful thing but then but you know we have a reality where we have to live live somewhere right we could we could be completely nomadic that would be a beautiful thing but um you know the reality for most of us is we have to live somewhere and we have to pay bills and that's the reality that we need to drag dance into right um uh but doing it in a more kind of beautiful wild way is perhaps better and to do that in a practical way and the feminine is always very practical <laughs> the best thing first to do is just to cover your bases cover your bases with something else you know, and my role thing kind of helps me do that. And it helps that I don't live alone and I live with my husband because <laughs> that's impossible, you know, to make the jump between... You could never live on your own, I think, as a dance artist in London anyway. Um, but, and, you know, I'm not saying, so get married first. <laughs> but what I'm saying is attend to that basic thing first before we... That's kind of... That's the sensible thing to do, I think, before we become fugitive. But in answer to your 
in actual answer to your question, yes. And what I'm finding, it is, it is taking me into a different space. Um, and I'm finding, um, instead of my life that felt always chasing, I felt even though I was a dancer and, you know, I made many pieces or taught many classes or whatever, I thought I was always somehow chasing, um, you know, writing applications or getting other people to write applications or and guiding them or, you know, doing those contracts. And I've just let go of all of that. Um, and I find myself kind of self-acknowledged more, which is everything really, as an artist. So my days are more, more now like um, I practice in the woods, you know, and the next dance is always at my fingertips. Um, like brewing because I'm always there practicing. I'm not. I'm not thinking. Oh, I've got to get that money before I can practice, or I've got to go to that class before I can practice. Um, and I do have input from others. You know, I have teachers that I follow that I connect to here and there. But um, but mainly it's that, and it's not the kind of because I felt so dissatisfied by the model of independent dance artists that I was dwelling in um, pre-pandemic. Already, I felt dissatisfied, and I was kind of searching for something else. And so it's not that kind of independence. But it's a kind of independence where I'm held by my own artistic practice um, because I have no need to go, oh, shit, where's my next performance going to be and who's going to pay for it and um, who am I going to try and convince to try and resource this, right? I don't convince anybody and um, and that is that is even bigger than than the very concrete reality that I go out, I was going out weekly in the, when I first went out in the pandemic, and now I go out on the turns of the year, so um, the pagan turns of the year, <laughs> um, winter solstice in bulk, summer solstice, um, which kind of connects me to something else that's not someone else telling me what to do. I'm not really good at being told what to do. <laughs> um, but also I'm not, I, I felt I was being pulled before by, by necessities to like tour at this time or, um, or write to right to venues for touring at that time and now I'm in a completely different rhythm that nature is kind of so it's like oh shit it's in bulk and she's already tugging my hands and I have to go so also kind of it means that she's um I'm in this I'm committed to someone else who is more like nature than 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 a kind of systemic reality that I was feeling was a bit painful and dysfunctional and um you know bordering in a, on abusive um so she's tugging my hand now. And so even beyond the concrete reality, which when I do go, and I've been going two and a half years now, so I do have a, a small following of people who come regularly. And then also uh, there's other ways that we've worked on, particularly um, when Rachel Elderkin, fellow Sancho on the Faultline um, dancer, has come to dance with me. Um, like we put little posters up with a QR code, even when we were rehearsing, and people begin to like, oh, what's this? And they're kind of astounded to find dance in, in, the, in the woods. <laughs> Um, and so we also get a kind of audience that just begins to come along during a rehearsal process. Um, and, and people do come and they do donate. And, and I don't make the same as I would, you know, give myself probably for an arts council yet, but I have hope that I will. Um, and I haven't written that arts, arts, arts council application. And I've made four pieces in the, you know, in the last two years um, with what you would say with nothing. And what I find also comes back to me for um dance, like making dance in that way by like running to my wild space and and like with that kind of like oh something's bursting forth um with that feeling of like oh something's bursting I just need to test this um and like I just need to dance in this right um and I find 
dancing in a in in the woods with people just standing around and they move place and stuff and they begin to know me because the same people are beginning to come um, and they talk to me afterwards I get I get a feedback that I don't get in the theatre um, because there's a distance there's a different expectation there's a different relationship and um, and it's not necessarily verbal feedback but I get to know the dance that I'm doing because also the trees I'm like you know I'm my hands are in the earth and one dance I made, I'm actually in a tree the whole time. Um, and it's like I've got something to, to hit against, which you haven't really got. It's not the same as having an audience far away in a theatre with a different expectation. They're all very still and in kind of passive receipt. Like everyone's moving around and it's just, there are so many um, layers, like delicate, intricate mycelial layers to this kind of, pra to this the Sancho and the Faultline practice that I've kind of dug up out of the ground um but that's definitely one of them and it is yeah it is beginning to bring me a what it does do is it brings me a financial resource even to the making process without having to write an application or ask anyone if I can go and if they will be my partner to make this dance or whatever so um it makes me very fluid you know I can I can move and then actually I find it comes into my body like actually physically like I move differently so just for me to see if we, if I understood correctly, we are talking about here a dance practice that it's more of a self-service. Uh, I don't like this word very much, but just lacking mm. for another one, like a hobby or a passion to be self-nourishing or a gift to those who like to come along rather than a profession or a remunerate practice that somehow it could be yeah sustained by those donations but my question would be is because you were saying that you are not getting the same that you would get from an arts council yeah. application which i got a few of them and they are not sustainable meaning that no they're also not get... sustainable i know yeah so they're not. yeah that's not that's a, that's a crap comparison sorry uh, no um, no no but just just not not that not a no. crap comparison but just to be very pragmatic what are we no, talking I about love it. are, are you, you going to be able to to stop dancing for two months to be able to do that or is once again just get your basic uh, fix uh, or settle by another yeah. job and this is more a passion not a passion it's um it's a way and i don't know all of the way yet because it's been two years but what i am at the point i'm at, at the moment is um i've made for, and because i am also quite strong that i needed a way for dance to come in into the world through me as a choreographer and as a dancer without hurting me or anybody else um, and it's kind of answering that and that's what I've kind of um, danced us through already but what's happening now is um, this really strong um, so I've also been making making more music in the pandemic and um, particularly with my husband Al um, and now there's kind of four pieces that I've un unearthed in this way that have been through this process of being performed many times in this kind of community, in this uh, in the in the woods, in you know, with audiences coming and in, in a gift economy. Um, and we've actually got a residency um, at Norwich Theatre Royal next year because what I want to do is like all of this wildness that has come through, and and there's been so much more that I think we'll probably talk about about you know the ego getting out the way of the dancer. Um, in this process of rewilding that I've been through all of this wildness of like of the trees and also the music we've been making have been very inspired by the by the sea at night like my husband's been taking these photograph photographic images that are being projected and so that's just beginning to come together now after two and a half years 
that we want to bring all that wildness back into the theatre. And without writing an application, we've got a residency just because the dance of my life happened, got me, got me chatting to um, the artist development officer there. Um, Tell us again, what, what is the place that you got the residency? Norwich Theatre Royal at stage two. And then I'm going to be thinking, and I'm, I'm going to be thinking about touring. So there's, there's two things, making that into a live theatre work, but bringing all of the weather of the woods and, the, and looking at the sea in the deep winter in Great Yarmouth, which is deeply bleak. If you've been to Great Yarmouth, you'll know. Um, um, and bringing like also with us, we're working with our friend Martin Ghent, who's a designer and artist and facilitator, um, to like, how could we bring all of the weather of that, which is so emotional as well, into the theatre and begin to touch people, like to begin this, to bring this rewilded dance hood back to the mainstream, you know, because, and from a place where I feel I have ground. And so that's beginning to happen um, uh, without me writing an application. And, and I'm also going to be um, working with uh, Sammy Gray, who's been working with me a little bit as assistant producer in a kind of reciprocal relationship. Um, and we're going to, so I've made, I've made two films in this time of the work that I've been making in the wild, um, one on the beach and one in the woods. And, um, and I'm going to be looking at touring that, not just to dance venues, but also maybe to um, to some music venues, because it's got a score written by me and Al um, to it. Um, and also maybe to, because it's got a very contemplative edge, <laughs> that piece, it's called Lakes of Anima, um, that solo dance that's made, the film's made by my husband, Al, um, and the score is by the two of us. Um, and in all the mess of this i've also picked up my flute again which i haven't for a long time um and so i'm beginning going to begin to research which is like in those moments where i felt i didn't have any worth in the pandemic you know as a dancer you know i was scrubbing around in the dirt of the woods and you know i kind of picked up my flute again and i'm going to be like investigating could I, how could i play this score that we've written and also dance the dance and so pick up the flute at one point and then dance and so like it's beginning to move back to what you might call um the market like the dance market but like it feels like in a way that's like so enriched by where i've been and also so resourced by how i've been there do you know what i mean um so i haven't yet like got the answer for everybody of like okay that this is how you do it on on, on the fault lines <laughs> um through the central on the fault line project but but um any dancer is welcome to join the the movement and to like be in contact with that kind of different way of um like letting dance through us um and we find so much when we get there because when we get to the woods you know we have to get out the way we can't you know um we have to pour our grief and our rage and um very different things come through as a dancer i think um when you're not attending to the systemic elements all the time Definitely, I, I, I agree with you that those kind of practices that comes from that spark, they are the best way to digest our own emotions. And by doing that even more in nature, we are allowing other people to conduct, to use as a vehicle for their own emotions. And, and that's beautiful. And probably the self-sustainability of it, the professionality, the remuneration of it is a conversation for another day uh, because it's, it's a massive uh, thing that probably we would not find the, the solution today. But it's good to know how other people are. I mean, yeah, and when you can make a film and then book a tour and be paid for it to be toured, then, I mean, that's a remuneration, right? Yes, uh, although we have some episodes in which we had different artists telling us how challenging was to move one piece once it's done and how many hours you spend writing those applications. Um, keep posted for that because I haven't got the answers yet, but I'll let you know.
Yes, please <laughs> let us know because we haven't found the model yet that pays for those 40 hours a week, uh, having one yeah. gig a month. We haven't figured out. We have. I think we've different... got some advocacy work to do too. And, yeah, right. And, that, and here we are. Yeah. Well, I would like to start the, the advocacy with the dancers themselves. It's like, what is our service to society? What is uh, that give and take? You know, you offer a rolfer, rolfing class and have a very specific skills that the people who are receiving that class are receiving a particular service and therefore they are paying an, an, a very uh, clear amount for that. So from this podcast, I really would like to clarify to, or to, to help people to clarify what are their values and the service and how from hearing how other people like, like yourself are doing, they find themselves like, okay, this is what I can offer and this is where I am going to claim my place in society because I have a service and we all do. We all know that that self-experience is invaluable, that the experience that some people are getting by watching us is invaluable. But one of the problems that we are finding at the moment is that we are not reaching everyone. It's, it's not accessible for many people. The amount. The, I'm, I'm just talking about the end product. That yeah. all, no, it's true. The process. We've got a lot of work to do and I feel like... This work that we're doing, you know, that it sounds like you're doing and, and I'm doing and many of the, the women dancers on the Centre on the Fault Line movement is like, no, we do have to do that first. We have to acknowledge our worth and find our ground because otherwise we've got nowhere to come from. And then there's the like, the, the audience advocacy, you know, that's like, actually, this is what dance does. Because like I said, I think that as a human family, we've, we've become deeply numb to what dance does for us. And then, I mean, it's a, it's a mountain of work, but we've, we're going to have to get to it, right? <laughs> Yeah, what, what is the service that we are providing and what is the value? And and that's, that's it. So I would like to talk about the service that you are providing with this uh, lab that you are organizing by the end of uh, January, which I think it's an, a great opportunity for people to meet, to discuss, to find those solutions for themselves. Um, and something that I'm very, very interested before we go into the content of it is your sense of community. It, it comes across really strongly through the fault lines uh, work, but also something that was very, very interesting that I haven't seen that clearly articulated in other uh, events is how you created hubs. So for example, this event is gonna be run in Ghana, in uh, Noyam Dance Institute, where people can go there. And this uh, dance institute became a host for this uh, dance of being. But also in Australia, you have uh, das, those hubs. Where that idea of creating hubs came from? Uh, is there more in conversation about that? Um, and mainly one of my questions, what would be the benefit from someone in Ghana, in Spain, in Austria, to attend the dance of being through those hubs, to go and be there for those three days and receive all these classes online, but in those hubs, rather than them being at home and receiving them. Well, I think there's two angles that you can kind of understand it on. Like one, a just very practical one of like, okay, like we know from doing the, you know, kind of observation of doing the first, the first lab and the second one of like observing the, the group psychology through the whole, um, thing and like magic happens <laughs> and I think you know all of us that have been on retreats particularly live retreats we know it we know that magic um, and there's something and I don't I don't I don't really want to take responsibility for the full curation of of the labs even though I've, I have done it but it's like something else is moving through me to tell me like okay we need these people um, 
um, and we need this rhythm and we need to meditate as well and we need a kind of opening circle ritual um, and we need a closing one and we need time to talk and we need this and blah blah and um, it's kind of like it's kind of come through me I can't really take the full responsibility um, but um, I've let it channel I suppose but in that like observing that happen and watching the magic of like not like the light bulb moments of like oh like this is my worth and actually this is what happens in my mirror neurons for example in one of the talks of the labs of the last labs when I dance and that's why I'm communicating so clearly and explicitly to the audience um and then you see a light bulb of value like light up in that in that participant and and then you know they're eating their lunch and they can talk to someone else about it and those things I think and actually I have also watched you know what I call the anchorites uh on their own at home um go through a similar process and so it's not necessarily that they have to be in a live space but I think there's and and John Sturck who's going to be with us this lab his work is very connected to um Christian Murti and people who are very clear but also quite complex and intellectual about um how group psychology works and what happens um so there's something very practical about just watching the magic that has unfolded and then something, you know, those dive more deeply philosophical and things about group psychology that was like, ah, oh, the way that this could grow is that um, we're a kind of, if I don't also see where we're streaming from is the centre, because, you know, I'm not the centre of the world and nor is that place, <laughs> um, uh, then actually those, that kind of liveness which seems to have so much potential and magic could also happen by people joining together in another space, but streaming in. Um, because already we were doing that in the main hub space because some of the teachers were streaming in and some were there live. Um, so it just began, like the, the possibility just in, just of that in, just began to grow in my mind. And then, you know, just people crop up. <laughs> so like I begin to, um, I've already, because Noyam is where I studied as a, as a younger dancer. And so I'm really good friends with Tete, who's now the director. Um, and I was like, T, do you want to just run a lab? And he was like, hell yeah. Um, and, and, and then he did it last year and he noticed, I mean, actually, the different things that different people get from it is quite amazing. The feedback from, it was just women dancers last year. This time it's men and women dancers and, and any member of the public who wants to join because it's deep, but quite simple how we're approaching it. Um, uh, but the women dancers there last year said they felt, their feedback was they felt it was an opportunity to to go to go to school um and which was feedback i never expected they're very very talented uh, a youth dance company um the youth dance arm of noyam and um but the way that they operate noyam is that um uh kids that from families who can't afford to send their um their kids to late to, to, to continue into school because they have to pay at some point um noyam offered to to train them as dancers um, and to pay them a small amount for the performances so they keep so they can run the school a little bit like that and also the the kids get a bit they get a bit of money by doing it and so it's um it's really kind of it's a offer that a lot of families really find very appealing um and so but these kids hadn't at, you know stepped out of school in order to become to learn dancers so and some for some reason because there was talks and classes as well they felt that they'd been to school and it was a kind of feedback that i'd never anticipated but that was really beautiful. Um, and then in Australia, one of the Central and the Fault Line dancers who found the movement somehow and then became a member, she's running the hub in Australia. And then someone who just knew Bio Kumalafi, who's speaking this time, 
and his and his notions of fugitivity, which are not dance based, but he he has a beautiful understanding of dance. If you come and meet him, um, and many many things as well, a beautiful understanding of many things, and is able to poetically kind of invite us into many different um, worlds. Um, a dancer kind of followed him and then was like, "I'm going to set one up in Berlin," and it just seems like there's some there's there is a tangible kind of. Uh, there's a tangible something that people get from being together, from attending together with others. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, the Berlin one, I don't think is yet in their website. No, it's but... not up yet. That's a secret. I shouldn't have unleashed it yet, but it's coming. I was going to ask <laughs> you for more secrets because I was going to say okay. people from Ghana, people from Australia who are listening to this podcast, now people from Berlin, uh, keep an eye on, on the content uh, of the program notes just for you to be able to be in those places. And I was going to ask you, is there any other conversation ongoing that you think that is going to become another hub before? There's one in Oxfordshire in the UK that's considering becoming a hub. Um, and also the invitation is for any dancer or member of the public if they feel they've got a community who would like to all come um the offer is that you get 50 of the fees of the people that for the people that join with you and in order that you can kind of become a um a kind of coordinator for that hub which means that you need to get a studio and just kind of take care of people a little bit while they're and, and a projector and take care of people while so anyone can be decide to become a hub initiator so if anyone who is listening us in any part of the world and want to become a hub, uh, get in touch. In terms of the content, uh, I was looking at, you're bringing someone who is going to be teaching uh, the first uh, known piece by Isadora Duncan. And by the copy uh, of your website and the content, I was thinking that it reminded me a lot of uh, Anna Halprin's uh, legacy, uh, Deborah Hay. Can I ask you, those are the the grandmothers of the performing arts, of the modern contemporary dance uh, performing arts. Uh, so in a moment in time where everyone is using the new advances in neuroscience, anatomy, quantum mechanics, uh, or, or any kind of like science-based uh, advancements in order to move on the craft of performing arts, why do you think we should be looking and practicing those reps and, and and things that came over 100 years ago and also what are the current references of these feminist powerful naturalistic animalistic um, side of performing arts yeah also yeah barbara kane who's one of the who's one of the she's a fourth generation as a dora duncan dancer uh incredible teacher and is coming to teach the first and the last of Isadora Duncan's dances um, and she's been at every lab Barbara um, and I was before the labs I was beginning to work with uh, with Isadora Duncan repertoire for a, a project a project in Paris and so it, something was lighting up in me in, like in these questions of um, what are the other way you know what is this other way of be becoming an independent dance artist or maker and dancer and dance dancer maker because I think we're a particular tribe the ones of us who are dancers and makers um um what's the fodder like what's the um what's the way and Isadora Duncan I I just picked up her biography and I was just and I read it and I was really more deeply intrigued by her you know she's always been in my consciousness I think she is in all of us um not just dancers because she's so well known but um I think she's under I think she's I think she's 
uh, underrated, even as far as she is known. Um, and that, and so I started studying her repertoire. And what I, what I discovered as I began to do that was, um, particularly as a rolfer. So my job as a rolfer is on a basic level is to, you know, is this, is this individual orienting well in gravity? You know, are they letting weight through them? Which is the big question for a dancer because that so much comes from like the question of support. Are they supported and acknowledged by the world? Like we were saying about Fred Astaire, you know, these kind of hardnesses in us that don't let the weight through or back up through um, are big points for not just for dancers, but for everybody. And it affects how we breathe and how we walk and how we might come into pain or not. But when you do Isadora Duncan repertoire, the way that she uses the body, and we know that she right, she began to dance in a very independent, she was like a, a scream or like a, a flame that came from nowhere. Um, she, you know, she left school, she started te teaching the village kids full in her house. There wasn't a male figure around. Her mum was a pianist and would play for them. And she was also out a lot. So she just, Isadora just had this free reign and she would just have all the local, the tiny kids around teaching them to dance. And then she just found this form completely from nowhere, right, through her own body, in a similar way to Ida Rolf, I guess, found Rolfing. This kind of flame, these flames just kind of ignite. And it's often in the feminine realm, you know, not necessarily just in women, but in the feminine realm of like that kind of conjured allowing of something to come through. And I think Isadora's not going to school was a big something out getting out of the way, you know. Um, but what you find when you start studying her rep, if you just look at it, you think well, that's pretty archaic and maybe quite, you know, gestural. Um, but if you do it, um, what I found was, wow, she is using the body in a way. So as Rolfers, we're, we're inviting people to use the body in a way that does not resist the body itself. And, and, and you know, Ida Rolf said, we want a strength that has ease in it. You know, we want a, a way that doesn't, we're not in the way of ourselves and we're not in the way of others and we don't get into pain. And Isadora moves her body in the most beautiful spirals and she's rooted with her foot in a way that I don't often see in contemporary dance or in ballet, um, but in a way that we know that the big toe has such a foundational, like radical place in the human body, right? She uses the big toe in a way that we understand as Rolfers is so deeply necessary, but so deeply missing from our reality where we're walking in shoes all the time. Um, and she spirals through the body in a way that's just, um, it's deeply healthy, it's deep health. And so I wanted to bring the repertoire back because I realised that that's what she was up to. You know, it might look very theatrical or, gest or overly gestural to us now, but when you do it, it has so much simplicity to teach of how we, how we, how we can be in the body that I just felt I just wanted to bring it back because it also has relates to um, she, she the way she channels emotion is very pure, I would say. Um, and that's something that we need to learn as dancers to be able to, you know, like I said, if it's one of our deepest jobs to to do, to channel emotion so others can digest emotion and their, therefore their own experiences of the world, then we should be open to emotion. And Isadora is so her body and her repertoire is so channeling of, of pure emotion. Um, so that's why I wanted to kind of bring it back into the world um, through the labs. Mm. Yeah, we, we've been doing quite a lot of work lately about the big toe and uh, we've been following, uh, yeah, Ido Portal and David Thunder and Tom Afian is one of the episodes that we are going to be releasing soon. He's talking a lot about that uh, structure uh, and how important it is. And now I understand much better how 
something that was done 100 years ago, it's very relevant now because it combines all that anatomical, emotional, uh, technical. She knew health and she moved in it. And she did it by not just how she moved her body, but also by being a woman and getting on stage in the way that she did, right? Mm. Just for us to white up our uh, references, could you help us and tell us who we should be looking at today that is uh, at today's practice uh, that it's a reference like Isadora was uh, in the late uh, century someone that we should look at in that feminist powerful animalistic anatomical any other dance figures current dance figures in the public arena that we should look at that is going to be the Isadora Duncan in 100 years ago in in the 22nd century the next Anna Halper in the next Deborah Hay, someone that we need to look at now. I don't know anyone else who's diving in that, apart um, apart from me in my making process. Um, and yeah, I found it hard to find the people um, within the in the territory that I'm talking about. I found it hard to find dance artists in that territory um, in my con- in the in contempt in contemporary which is why I think I dive around in lots of different disciplines. Um, um, but I find um, I find so much fodder in, in what I learn as a meditator um, in being a dancer, um, kind of more in a way than I learn from my fellow dancers, although I love them deeply and I learn a lot from them all the time. But this kind of, this thing that I'm, I guess I'm, I, maybe I'm talking around, at these like deep unspiralling, at this deep, delicate blossoming of, of fem- what I would call a feminist power. Um, I learn how to do that and I, and I seek that through, um, in, you know, in my work as a dancer and in my life, um, more through contemplative communities. Um, and, you know, and I have found it a bit in Isadora Duncan and, and people like John Sturt than I do in my, con- in my dance contemporaries. Um, so I kind of, it unfolds from there for me more than it does in that reality. Um, for those who are listening, if you have uh, suggestions and names, please uh, send us a message in Instagram or, or contact us in any way because we would like to, to gather more names, more future references. Uh, just to finish, I would like to end up a little bit how we started because I was not expecting to go into the finances or things like that, but I thought it was very, very interesting. I think we have to do something about it. And in the website for registering in in the, in the event that you are running in a few weeks. It's interesting because there is kind of like a, a different layers of donations and there is a, a sentence that it says to, uh, if you are unable to generate income and you would like to contribute a lower amount, please write to us. So I'm interested in circular economies, gift economies. I am a socialist at heart and... Uh, but as we were saying before, I've seen the damage of the scarcity blueprints and the survival sometimes is mistaken by self-sustainability. So can you tell me how those two coexist in, in this event? So, for example, I didn't see any logos or any supporters. So if you don't have enough people, how the teachers... Yes. So how they, how if people cannot afford to go and, and, and get this amazing opportunity of studying with you all for three days and they can pay a bit less, how is that compensated to the to the teachers? How, how do you deal with those models as a curator, as an organizer? Something I'm very interested in because we need to find new models. Yeah. 
at the, with nothing but bravery. So that's the only thing that's taken me there so far. And it's been a bit of a, like, one of the more invisible steps of, of how Sancho on the Fault Line has unfolded um, and, and, and created this lab, these labs as it's gone. Um, and it's very much been a process and, I, and it's been quite challenging to stick to it as a process of this, but to not construct it into something that is a model. Um, in fact, sometimes it has constructed into kind of more more um, structural realities, like you know listings and oh streaming and things, and then they get dis they get deconstructed because there's something about maybe finding support in the so the beginning the first the first lab was supported by the National Lottery, the second by Arts Council of England, um, but I didn't find myself doing any less getting any less exhausted than I am this time, and this time. First of all, I've got experience of doing it, of having done it twice. And secondly, it was a massive step of bravery of like, okay, I know. So when I was doing the, the first two labs, I had, I was supported by Universal Credit as a dance artist in the, in the pandemic. And so I had a kind of ground, right? I had a, you know, I could kind of spend some time attending to getting some funding because I had, I didn't have to, you know, my brain wasn't flitting around thinking, but when I'm going to, when am I going to pay this month's rent? Um, and so I could do that. And then there was this big moment in Central on the Fault Line where I was like, I can't do this anymore because I was running monthly meetings, which were a really beautiful way of finding our way through this way that's not yet finished yet. Um, this kind of feminist way of birthing dances into the world, um, this fugitive way. Um, and then hopefully back into um, what you would call the more animus, the more male kind of aspects of coming into um production lines <laughs> or at least being resourced um, um and this time because i'd had that experience already and because i was very clear with the members and and the teachers that i couldn't get the money ahead of us doing it um but there was kind of history already that that it was working and people attended and they were really beautiful events um that had a big impact on people's lives um there was a kind of trust i think and i could work on that and this time enough people are coming um, so far to um, and everyone was willing to come on board with me doing that but and also everyone was willing just to give me the reins which has been a lot to hold you know um to to design it to curate it to um be in touch with everybody um around the practicalities of you know um uh coming but what i'm finding is because i don't offer um lower tiers on the website and people have to be in touch it's really only the people that are genuinely need to be in touch around that that do um, and people that can are paying the co higher contributions and people that really can't but actually would just long to come um, are coming and there was a, and there was before this there was um, in the first iteration there was bursaries for dancers because we all had you know we were all we didn't have anything in the pandemic um, and so it's kind of been a process of like first offering bursaries and then beginning you know and and with funding but continuing to build trust um, within the collaborators and within the community that are beginning to come. Um, that there's no, and, and also I just said, I said to all the collaborators, I'm gonna give you the full breakdown of, of what's, of the income of the, of the thing. And I'm gonna show you what's going to everyone. And this is what I'm hoping is gonna come. And this is where I'll go up to per, per session. Um, and we'll cap it there. And if anything else has been made, then we'll decide what to do with, with the rest, you know, re regarding the Sanctuary and the Fault Line movement. Um, or, or ourselves or whatever. And so there's just been a lot of clarity and trust around that. And it just seems to communicate somehow to, to the public that are coming.
Thank you. Thank you for your transparency. It's something that it's very close to my heart because when we were running the Towards Juventus Academy and we were running these online classes for dancers, uh, we were really, really clear with the accounting and we always published what we get by, by months, by donations, how much we pay the teachers. And I think that's something that I really would like to see more and more in initially in dance institutions um, supported, th that transparency, and then hopefully into the world that probably makes it a bit more equitable and uh, easier for everyone to understand uh, where things are and no misunderstanding. So thank you for that. For everyone who is listening, these three days look like a, an amazing uh, self-dive uh, practice into creating a value for yourself and getting clarity and, and practicing together and the psychology of the group, which I think is very, very important. I, I very much celebrate that idea of the hubs that even if you have to attend remotely, you can attend with other people. So congratulations for that, Haley. I think it's a, it's a brilliant idea. Is there anything else that you would like us to know about this dance of being? I think it is a, a brilliant initiative. And is there anything else that you would like to, us to know? Maybe only a tiny bit of the rhythm of our days, which are quite kind of um, very, very lightly uh, ceremonial. <laughs> um, you know, we open we open circle and that's become uh, a ritual of the Central on the Fault Line movement. It's quite basic that we kind of, we walk three circles to a particular song and that's changed because the feminine always changes. And so we have to be willing to change all the time with this movement somehow. Um, but anyway, and then we're, so when we're meditating together and then we have John Sturck teaching us and then me, um, we have a long lunch break and lots of books around for those coming live. Um, and then we have uh, a talk. We have Beo Kamalafi coming to talk about possession and Andrew Sanger to come, coming to talk about liminality and community in dance practice and how we can uh, dig from that. And then we have me and John and Beo talking about dance as, as the foundational, as foundation, as the foundation of being. Um, and then in the evenings, then we have Barbara Kane teaching the two, the first and last dances of Isadora Duncan's rep in the afternoon. And then we have a time in the evening um, where some of our members, the Sanctuary and the Fortnite members, will be kind of uh, offering something, a film work or photographs that they've made of their dancing, and they'll be offering kind of questions for breakout rooms. So it'll be a time where we can zoom around, where we can open the whole field of the lab around the world, and you could, we can get to be with in little groups with people, um, you know, in the whole web of joining from so far from from the US, from London, from Australia, from Ghana, from Germany. And so it'll be a kind of web around the world. Um, and uh, what happens is alchemic. It is um, these be a, a beautiful thing unfolds. Mm. I wish you all the best for this end of January. Repeating dates that I was looking at on my computer is the 20th of January to the 22nd of January. Uh, live stream via Zoom or in Copper Dot Studio or Church Hall in Tronso. Uh, Hayley, please keep us updated if it's going to be a fourth edition or not. Thanks so much. Mm. Everyone who would like to know more about the amazing work that Hayley is doing, we will post all the links uh, in, the, in the program notes. And also, if you would like to know more about Fault Lines, the Sanctuary of Fault Lines is a uh, Haley's uh, initiative that is going around the world. And I was diving into it uh, before this conversation. It's really, really, really interesting what's going on. So please check it out. Haley, thank you so much for taking the time to talk in, uh, for, uh, with us. Thank you for organizing these kind of things. I think it's really, 
important that we keep gathering as dance artists, keep moving our practices, keep nourishing each other, discovering, channeling, as you were saying before. I think it's really, really important. So thank you for that. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. Good luck and take care.